Think back to your earliest memory. So what my class would do is like every single month for like a corresponding holiday or like seasonal event, we'd have to like go home and like draw a picture for it. And so I think it was like September, October, like around that area when like the leaves were changing. And we got one and it said like pick someone in the class that you'd want to go on to an apple orchard with. And I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> so I went home and I like drew this picture of me and this kid I had like a crush and like on his name was Patrick. I drew this picture of like the two of us um, in class, not like in class, but, like at this apple orchard. And I like, I put like in really big letters at the top, like, I want to go to the apple orchard with Patrick. Oh <laughs> and my God, that's incredible. No, and then so then the next day, like we get back to um, class, we have to like share them. And then so Patrick goes and he goes, yeah, I want to go to the apple orchard with Luke. And I was devastated. No. Like that was my first heartbreak. And so then I had to like stand up and be like, Patrick, I want to go to the apple orchard with you. <laughs> But that was my earliest memory, just like first grade me devastated because Patrick didn't want to go to the apple orchard with me. Welcome to the very first episode of American Student Radio, right here on WIUX LP Bloomington. So uh, I'm your host this week, Sophia Salvi. American Student Radio, or ASR for short, has has existed since 2011. And this episode celebrates a new chapter in our group's history with a show dedicated to beginnings. You'll hear stories from meeting relatives while saying goodbye to a loved one to taking the stage for the first time at a comedy club. I hope you'll enjoy our show. From Bloom... <laughs> from... Uh, okay, live... live... what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy journalism and lesbians first up this week we have an episode of the entanglement a new podcast about college relationships from journalism students danny costanzo and alex daly you'll hear a short introduction by the producers followed by the first episode of their podcast chronicling sam and his not so perfect first time you're not going to know exactly who it is. We'll tell you their first name, and you'll know that they go to IU, but you'll probably never know who's telling the story. I think that's what I like most of that kind of intimate look you're getting at a person, and you don't really get any other information about them. Danny, I think you're getting a little ahead of yourself. Let's back it up a bit. I'm Danny, And I'm Alex. And we're both journalism students at Indiana University. We've both been in relationships, some long-term, some short-term. Those have ranged anywhere from eight months to about three hours, depending on the day. So we were talking about how college relationships are really interesting in that this is a very kind of weird time to be dating and a weird time to be hooking up. There's alcohol involved. There are usually a lot of people that you don't know and might not see again because it's a big school. But these connections can go beyond the hookups at college parties. We're also going to show you the other side of college relationships that you may not have heard as much about. The date nights and the long-distance relationships the interactions you don't see on social media, the ugly realities of relationships in college, and even the ones that don't fit into any category at all. So every week, we're going to interview a different Indiana University student and tell you their story. We spent a lot of time thinking about our name. Like at least a month or two. Several conversations. We made a lot of word clouds. But after weeks of bad ideas, we finally got it. The entanglement, a complicated or compromising relationship or situation. It's about you, and it's about all the connections you've made, and also it's about all the connections that are being made as you listen. So we're just, I guess, trying to say, like, it's complex, and we understand that, 
and we don't know all the details, but we're trying to get as close as we can to what it actually looks like to date in college. So today we're adding ourselves to the entanglement. We hope you'll join us. Today we're adding Sam to the entanglement. I'm Sam. I'm a senior here at Indiana University studying journalism. I'm 21 years old. My first time was when I was 18, and it was on my senior prom night. It was with a girl that I wasn't, we weren't really dating, uh, but we were seeing each other. We were, I guess we were dating. We just weren't like like together really, you know what I mean? Uh, we went to prom. Prom was eh, fine, whatever. Our group went back to our friend's place. All the, the couples had set up tents around this bonfire pit, and everyone was drinking. I didn't because I, something felt kind of off with her. By the time everyone was ready to go to bed, um, we're going back to the tent. And she just like grabs me by my collar and just yanks me into the tent. And there's like at that point, I, there's nothing I can really do. That and it, that was that was you know that happened. The whole experience was very strange to me. It felt it felt off. It felt um, unnatural. Kind of. She was very drunk. Um, I wasn't. She was very loud. Everyone in the neighboring tents heard her. Much to my you know dismay. And then in her inebriated state, she sort of bawling her eyes out. And it ends up being about her ex-boyfriend that she split up with over the winter. This was the end of April. It had been a few months since then. And she's just crying. There's nothing I can really do. I look back on it now, you know, several years later, really kind of a traumatic thing. It ended up having probably a, a very significant effect on the way that I viewed sex and relationships and women in general. I, 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 it made me very timid. For a long time, I didn't even kiss a girl until my junior year of college. I had this idea that I had to try to go out and make something happen for myself to kind of um, make up for what had happened there because I just felt like I had no control over that situation. And reclaiming kind of my pride in that sense was important. Um, and I held on to that idea for a long time. Because for a while, when I, when I first started talking about it again, it came it would come out as a, as a joke. Like, oh, wow, wasn't this funny, you know? Which was really just masking how traumatic it actually had been. Within the last few months, I've kind of been able to come to terms with what it actually did mean. Don't just dive into it because you think that's what you do. You know, think it through. And even if it's not with like the right person, make sure it's in the right circumstances. You just heard Sam's story. I'm Alex Daly. And I'm Danny Costanzo. Next time on The Entanglement. The Entanglement is an outlet for students to share their stories, from meeting your fiancé on Tinder to ending things with your boyfriend of eight years. Email iuentanglement at gmail.com to share your story. Chelsea Barris, a former ASR student, brings us this story of how an accidental hobby in high school became a booming business and supportive community for a local barber. Dustin Smith has been working at Chad's Barbershop for four years. I'm giving this guy a faux hawk. It's a uh, blended mohawk. We're just going to spike up right here in the middle. He's got a wedding to go to today. Today? His brother's wedding. His clients come to him for designs, beard trims, special occasions, and even just a regular cut. Dustin is one of 17 barbers, and this is the shop owner and operator. My name is Chad Potts. Hold on. My name is Chad M. Potts. Chad started the barbershop 10 years ago and still loves cutting hair. That's what I do. <laughs> Chad did his first haircut when he was in high school. In 1992. It all started in a locker room where one guy. James was his name. I still remember it like it was yesterday. Was giving haircuts to everyone on the basketball team. As James was doing all of the cuts, Chad wanted to give it a try. I can recall that I thought, I think I can do that. 
and I remember I wanted to try instantly. And he said, have you done it before? And I blatantly lied and said, yes, I cut my cousin's hair all the time. Chad took a chance, held the clippers, and did his first cut. When I got done cutting his hair, it actually turned out better than everyone else's hair. He became the school barber, even being called out of class just to cut the guidance counselor's hair. Barbering served Chad well, and when he found out that his high school girlfriend was pregnant, it served as his way to earn money. I had gotten good enough that it was taking enough time that I either had to go get a job and try to prepare for what was going to happen in my life, or I decided I would just start charging for haircuts. Chad then entered a time where he didn't have a lot of direction. He tried college but then dropped out. He said he was in a funk and bounced from shop to shop trying to find where he needed to be. It wasn't until he started working at a bigger shop that things became clear. He envisioned his own shop, what is now known today as Chad's Barbershop. He had found his path, and he turned himself around personally. And then something happened. This is probably the backbone of what has kept me successful and makes me get out of bed every day is, unfortunately, my mother passed away, and she was probably like my best friend my whole life growing up and everything, and like I was really close to her. Chad's father loaned him the money from his mother's life insurance policy to get him started with his own shop. It made it more meaningful than just starting my own, taking my own money. I felt if I failed, I was going to fail her, and um, it would never bring her back, obviously, but I just felt like the reason, the way I got that money, it was more at stake than a lot of people even realize that maybe even work here now about how this place got started. Now, Chad's Barbershop is in full swing and is working at full capacity. 12 chairs and 17 barbers. Of those 17 barbers, 11 of them were former clients of the barbershop. And Chad takes great pride in their choice to join him in the profession that he loves so much. I'm honored and both humbled that they thought to themselves, I want to do the same thing he's doing. And I'm glad, I'm very thankful that I had uh, influence on their life like that. This is Dustin, Martinez, and Smurf. Chad's the greatest, the best boss around, as far as barbers go. He uh, he does a lot of things for us that no other shop owners would do. Like right now, he's ordering us all pizza. He said one of his proudest days is when I bought my brand new truck, because I got it from being a barber. We're not co-workers, we're not employees, we're family members. And when you treat somebody like a family member other than just an employee, it goes a lot further. That person's willing to do a lot more for you and stay later and work harder. Do you think that because you know where you've been and where you are now, that that's why you want the best for your barbers? 100%. And he often thinks of his mother. I don't have any regrets, but sometimes I do wish that I was this person a little longer that my mom could have met this guy. Because this guy is a lot better than the guy I was for several years, trying to be someone I wasn't, you know? Oh, you're just buying the next one. That's oh, it. Oh, I'm telling you. These 17 guys say they love working together. And Chad says he wants to do whatever he can to keep it that way. My goal is to have all of us be in heaven together. In Bloomington, I'm Chelsea Barris reporting.
That Story was produced by Chelsea Barris. Periodically, we'll play stories from our archives, putting older work in new light. What you're about to hear is part of an experiment called Matt Tries Things. Every week, you'll hear Matt drag along a friend to do something he's never done before. Then we will come back and tell the story right here on American Student Radio. This week, Matt goes head-to-head with a lobster. This is the sound of a lobster tank the size of a small bathtub. I'm looking at about 20 live lobsters inside, and I'm nervously thinking to myself, I'm about to decide which one of you gets eaten by me. This one here? Yeah. All right, all right. Right now, I'm pointing to the lobster that's closest to me, and Bryant, my waiter, <laughs> is scooping it up with a rake. Gets a little feisty sometimes, but he's all right. There he is. Hi. <laughs> okay. Okay, I can't believe it, but I just said hi to a lobster. A lobster I'm about to eat. If you're thinking I sound a little frightened, it's because I totally am. This lobster is flailing around, and Brian literally just said don't look too much into his eyes as a joke. But I was actually looking straight into the lobster's eyes at this point, and it was not comfortable. This is Matt Tries Things, a new podcast about, well, me, Matt, trying new things. This week, Matt tries lobster. (laughs) I get this straight to the kitchen. Okay. This whole project started as an afterthought. It's my senior year at school. I just got back from winter break, which was great. I am graduating in May. I do journalism and comedy here at school. I'm starting to seriously think about what my life is going to be like post-graduation. And I just, I just don't want it to be boring. You know what I mean? Like, I want to keep trying new things until I, I guess, I guess until I run out of new things to try. I don't, I'm still figuring out what the goal of it is, but I think the goal of it is really just to be able to say what I want and do what I want as, as small of a goal as it is, if it's. No, I think it's awesome. I think people don't make enough small goals. That's Teresa. She's my best friend slash roommate slash person who's going to come watch me try lobster for the first time. You know what I mean? Like, I don't make enough small goals for myself. That's why I stress myself out too much. Because, like, if I accomplish small things, I don't feel as good about myself as if I accomplish big things. But, like, why? Who's to say, like, the small things aren't the big things? I'm getting deep. I'm from Indiana, and my family never eats seafood. I think I maybe saw my mom eat some shrimp cocktail once at a wedding, but that was it. I'm totally the guy who will order chicken fingers at the seafood restaurant with ketchup and all of that stuff. French fries, too. Yes, don't forget French fries. I know. You can hate on me all you want for that. Here's what my mom said when I called her and told her about my plan to try lobster. So the sound quality of this next recording is really, really bad, but just forgive me this time, and I promise you I'll do some research to figure out how to make it sound better by the next show. It's in Jim, Jim Gaskin. Doesn't he talk about lobsters and, you know, all the crabs and stuff? They're bottom feeders, and we, and we think there's some delicacy. <laughs> They're like the roaches of the ocean. <laughs> No, I understand everyone loves lobster. I love lobster. Hey, I like butter too, okay? That's from Jim Gaffigan's one-hour comedy special, Obsessed. It's amazing. Go check it out. Um, I guess liking Jim Gaffigan as well as this lifelong aversion to lobster and most seafood runs in my family. Yes, yes. Well, I told you the first time I finally 
fried lobster was when I went with my mom and dad. We were out in L.A., you know, on on vacation, and um, I succumbed to ordering a lobster tail, and it was the grossest thing ever. But because it was so expensive, I ate it to the last, almost the last bite. And, um, of course, my dad couldn't let it go because he loves lobster, and he ate it, and he's like, oh, my gosh, Lisa, this is the grossest thing. <laughs> like, oh, I still haven't eaten another lobster because that was so gross. Until the 1800s, people treated lobsters pretty much like rats. They were, you know, fed to prisoners and associated with a lower class lifestyle. But these days, the lobster industry provides billions of dollars in revenue for state economies. Not to mention so many of my friends who claim they love lobster, even though I never see them eat it. It feels like, you know, when your friends give you crap for not having seen a movie like the new Star Wars, that's how I feel all the time when I bring up to them that I've never eaten a lobster. This brings us to the main event, the actual trying of the thing. It feels like at this point I need a drum roll or some background music or something. (laughs) Hey, sir, I have your first ever experience of a full lobster. All right, now, now don't forget your bib here, so that's very important. It's a very, very, very messy process you brought the experience. <laughs> I'm expecting it. I'm looking at it right in the eyes. Yeah, I want you to get the sound. I want you to get the sound of me cracking it because I, I'm afraid to touch it, actually. <sighs> that's the part that bothers me the most. That's the part That's the part that really bothers me the most is, are the eyes. Um... It takes me at least five minutes of just staring at the lobster before I can pick up its right claw. I'm half expecting it to run away from me, half expecting it to attack my face. Who knows what could happen? So I grab this nutcracker tool and place it around the right claw, and... And then the other claw... Oh. And then the body. Oh my god. That was actually very, very disturbing. (laughs) Like, I felt nauseous for a second. Matt just pulled apart the lobster, like, in two. Like, Hulk style. (laughs) The head is totally separate from the legs and the tail now. Okay, so... The lobster at this point is scattered across the plate in front of me. I've tried the claws and the tail meat, and I'm gonna say this isn't for me. It's it's just not for me. I don't I don't like the taste. I don't like tearing apart a creature. It makes me. It, I think it makes me appreciate even more that I can just go to Kroger or any grocery store, walk up to meat that's already been packaged for me take it home, cook it, throw some peppers or salt and whatever seasoning into it, and have a nice dinner without having to do this part of the job. But I do think everyone should have this experience, because I will never, ever forget that sound of the claws cracking. Matt Tries Things was produced for American Student Radio. If you like the show... Email Aaron Matt Bloom at gmail.com. That's A-A-R-O-N 
M-A-T-T-B-L-O-O-M at gmail.com with suggestions of things I should try next week. You know what's weird? What? This lobster was literally dead like 20 minutes ago. Or alive 20 minutes ago. I literally, I, I, I caused its death. Do you think PETA's going to boycott this podcast? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> suggest something for Matt to try in an upcoming episode, email him at AaronMattBloom at gmail.com. Each year, there are more than 20 million new cases of sexually transmitted diseases in the United States. By the age of 25, about one out of every two sexually active people will get one. And if left untreated, many can cause infertility and increased risk of cancer and HIV. But STDs often don't show symptoms, meaning many people who have them don't even know it. The only way to know that you have an STD or an STI is to get tested. And it's important to have a conversation about sexual history with your partner when starting a new sexual relationship. You can find a testing site near you at gettested.cdc.gov. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio's first show. Since our theme this week was beginnings, we asked some of our producers to think ahead and talk about their hopes for the show. I want it to be a really fun, collaborative place where if you're interested in exploring an issue or sharing a story, this is a place for you to come where you'll feel welcomed. And Audio storytelling, to me specifically, um, is just so impactful. And I want it to be like just somewhere where we can tell amazing stories, where we can come together and just kick ass 100% of the time. And what do you want American Student Radio to be? Um, I'd like it to be serious, but not too serious. I want it to still be fun, but also have an emphasis on producing um, professional-sounding audio. To keep up with our shows, follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice or send us a message at americanstudentradio at gmail.com with what you want the show to be. sat down to talk to someone who had just begun a major life change. Erica Winters, a transfer student to Indiana University, has just made the 2,000-mile move from California to Bloomington with the dream of working with the Kinsey Institute. She's a psychology major with a minor in business, primarily interested in the psychology of sex. You'll hear her talk first. I'm from California. I lived in San Diego, so by the beach. Um, I went to a community college out in California in Oceanside. It's called Miracosta. And I did a little bit of a four-year institution out there, but I disliked it. And so what brought you here? Because Indiana's uh, quite far <laughs> from California. <laughs> it's very far from California. Um, I came here specifically for the Kinsey Institute. I want to be involved with that in any way possible for about 
10 years, I've been talking about how bad I wanted to be involved with Kinsey and how it was a dream of mine. Um, but I was just like everybody else, I would wake up and say, I wish I could do something. And then one day I woke up and I realized I hated my life because it was just go to school, go to work, come home and have my dreams. And so I finally woke up one day and I said, you know what, I want to do this. I'm going to do it and see what happens. So um, where did you first hear about Kinsey and kind of what about it um, really inspired you to come here? Well, first I was working in the sex psychology. Uh, that's what I was researching. That was my, my main focal point. And I also worked at an adult store. And with I knew about Kinsey beforehand, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. I just knew it existed and what it was. Um, at the adult store, I got to talking with someone else who knew about Kinsey, and we just got to talking about it, and I decided that's what I want to do. Can you tell me any stories about working at an adult store? Because <laughs> I, I, it seems like an interesting place to work. I bet you have a lot of stories. <laughs> I have tons of stories. It's a very interesting place. Um, on one aspect, it is just basic retail once you get past the idea of what you're selling. Um, but yes, you get all kinds of characters. My very first day of working there, I had someone come in that had a foot fetish. And he put his foot on my counter and proceeded to tell me how beautiful his foot was and um, how any sexual act had to involve his feet. And so that was my very first day, very first introduction to working in that field. And how, like, how have your experiences working at an adult store kind of brought you to like studying sex as uh, like the psychology of a brain have have you seen any connections that you can definitely tie well this is because this this is because this yeah I've seen a lot of connections um I was interested in the psychology of sex before but working so close with people that are coming in they're afraid to tell you what they want because nobody wants to publicly talk about sex um well the younger generation's more okay with it i dealt with a lot of older generation that it was just a shameful thing to talk about and having them come in and talk to me uh, i realized that was my passion and i wanted to study everything about it about it and i started studying fetishes how those develop at what point in your life does a fetish develop um the connection between maybe a past history to current fetish, um, and even everything that happens in your body and in your brain during um, climax and all that. So that's what actually really interests me about it. And you do see that stuff play out in the adult industry. Even though I was just selling toys and DVDs, um, you, you see it. I had a real connection with my customers. Um, so going back to coming to IU, how hard was that decision to make? You said you just kind of like decided one day, but was it a little bit more complicated than that? It was so much more complicated than that. You have no idea. I, I like to do things spontaneous. This is by far the most spontaneous thing I've ever done. Um, spontaneous as in I might quit my job one day and go find another job in a completely different field. I've never in my life... Um, lived out of California. I've never set foot in Indiana. I don't have any family or friends out here. I simply just chose to move out here and it was the hardest decision of my life. I cried a lot. Um, I didn't tell anybody at first when I was going to move. I applied and I kept it a secret in case I didn't get in. Once I got accepted, I still didn't tell people for a while, and then I finally just decided, you know what, I'm going to do it and see what happens, and I told everybody, and within the course of three weeks, I packed, 
I rented a U-Haul and here I am. So this has happened like in the past like couple months, really? Yeah, I wouldn't even say past couple months. I've only been in Indiana for two weeks and going on three weeks. And yeah, maybe about the past month, my life changed completely. And how has your first couple weeks been? I know this is like probably <laughs> very different than California weather. <laughs> it's so much different. It's it's very cold. Um, I think the coldest it gets in San Diego, it does get cold. It's just it gets about in the 30s at like 2 a.m. So I'm generally used to 50 degree weather, not single digit weather. And how was orientation? Was it kind of like, um, I'm not sure if they're probably not as the same at a community college and then I'm not sure how winter orientation functions differently than fall orientation like I went through but was there anything that kind of surprised you during it? Well orientation at the community college I don't even remember so I don't even know if we had one it was community college. The orientation I had to go through for the four-year institution that I went to in California was about four hours long and then coming out here orientation was two days <laughs> so it was definitely a lot more intense um, the school pride out here is so much more and it's fantastic there was a lot of things that shocked me about orientation um, I loved how how happy everybody gets about the school I love the school pride um, I the programs here are fantastic there's I think he said 750 clubs you know that's <laughs> Definitely a lot of clubs. Um, and just like the pure fact of having an IT service on campus for when, you know, problems happen, uh, that was really shocking to me in a good way, but very shocking. The whole idea, the whole coming here and being here for about a week and then jumping into orientation was just such a culture shock for me. Um, what are you excited about? Is there anything that you've heard about that you're like, I can't wait to do that, whether it's like this semester and your first fall semester next year? Yes, um, there's so much stuff. I'm trying to pinpoint one thing. I do know for a fact I'm super excited to witness this little 500 that I keep hearing about. It's so famous. Um, even people at home here I have, know about it. I never have, but you know I'm very excited for that. And I'm also very excited here to see the spring because everybody keeps talking about how beautiful it is out here in spring. So. Um, as far as academics and anything, I am so excited to be involved with Kinsey Institute. I don't have anything lined up with them yet, but I definitely will. So that's, I chased my dreams and that was my dream. So just give it a semester. <laughs> as someone who has like kind of gone through orientation, both at community college and through um, this four year college, what does it feel like doing it like another time? Is it, um, like, how does it feel to start over? It does not feel good. I can tell you that much. That was one of the struggles with coming out here was knowing that I did start at a four-year. I transferred from my community college to a four-year out in California. And uh, I get, well, two years for me. And um, knowing that I was already one semester into it and then I decided to come out here, it sucked. It was really hard. It was a bitter pill to swallow to know that I have to start over. And then even coming out here and noticing that a lot of my credits didn't transfer and I'm basically bumped down a year, um, that was really depressing for me. But I think it's a better opportunity. So I try not to dwell so much about age or um, 
you know, because everybody here is significantly younger than me, it seems. I'm 26, so it seems like everybody that's graduating is like 21 maybe, and I do feel like I am behind, but I try not to dwell on it so much. I know that out here is going to be a much better experience, but yeah, it does, it does affect me sometimes. And um, had you visited Indiana at all before you came? No, I've never set foot in Indiana until the day I moved here. And what's been your impression of both the campus, the university, and then also Bloomington in general? The campus is beautiful, fantastic, and I I love this campus. I can take pride in this campus, and it's fantastic. Um, The people I have, I will be honest, I've noticed some people are um, very aggressive, and then some people are very nice. I don't see a middle. I mean, I see, this goes off campus too. Um, On campus, I've seen pretty nice people. Everybody's pretty friendly. Going off of campus and just maybe even in other parts of Indiana, I've noticed they're either very rude or very uh, happy and nice. So that's been interesting. What about driving in the snow? Because it's like you chose a very interesting time. Mm -hmm. You're not even easing yourself into Mm -hmm. the cold weather, the snow, driving through it, the ice. Um... I actually haven't driven too much in the snow. Actually, I really haven't driven in the snow. Yesterday was the first day that I drove in this weather, and there's really not that much snow around. I didn't hit any ice, thank goodness. Uh, I will be honest, I'm afraid to drive on the ice. Everybody I've talked to says, oh, you'll drift, and it's okay. Just, you know, and they tell me what to do, and I'm like, screw that, I'm not doing that. So I I pretty much just walk everywhere because... Um, I'm not ready to drive on the ice yet. I don't know what to expect, and I feel like because I'm from California, I'm going to freak out, and everybody's going to make fun of me. Um, But I've definitely slipped on the ice plenty, just walking through parking lots. (laughs) What do you you hope to um, kind of get out of IU, get out of the degree that you're going to get here? Definitely an experience. Um, I think that's mainly what I am after right now. It may not be so much about the degree. It might be more about the experience. When I first came here, or when I first had the idea of coming here, I wanted the piece of paper that had the IU logo on it as my degree. That's what I wanted, and I wanted to be able to say I graduated from a prestigious college. Now that I'm here, I really just want the experience. I want life experiences. I want to be able to look back someday and say, I did all this stuff. This was the best time of my life. And I got this amazing degree from an amazing school. I want the training from the teachers at Kelly Business. Um, I want any knowledge I can get from Kinsey Institute. Um, I mean, that's obviously my main passion. I would just take out their trash if they let me. I mean, I came 2,000 miles to be involved. So any information I can take from them is going to be beneficial to my future. And I want to be able to go through my future and anything I do with this as my background knowledge. And what do you think the hardest part in these very short three weeks about what's the hardest part about being a transfer student uh, coming to somewhere you completely don't know? I think the hardest part is not knowing anybody and also not knowing where anything is. I have to Google just how to get to Walmart. I mean, I don't know where anything is. I am starting to pick it up. The only times I don't have to Google anything is when I'm coming to school and I'm going to my classes. Um, but even just for this, I had to Google <laughs> where to go. So, or I had to look it up on a map. And I've also had to ask a lot of people about where things are. So, not knowing um, everything, just. 
being able to jump in a car and just go to the grocery store is such a luxury that we don't realize that we have until we're in a place we're not familiar with. So not knowing anyone, not knowing the area, and everybody I know is at home. Oh, and also the time difference. You know, I can't just call home whenever I want. I have to take in that three-hour difference into account. It's very difficult. <laughs> um, what's the biggest thing you miss from home? Mexican food and sushi. <laughs> I know it's, I've seen a lot of sushi places here. Um, I just haven't gone to any yet. And as far as Mexican food places, it there's one on every corner mm-hmm. at home and out here. I Someone said there was one, but I haven't seen it. And then do you have any regrets so far? I wish, I can't say they're exactly regrets. Um, I do wish I found a job before I came out here. I tried, it was very difficult. No one wanted to talk to me uh, knowing that I wasn't in town. They wanted to interview me right then. They didn't want to wait. And maybe just having a little bit more money saved up. I didn't have nearly what I thought I should have saved up, so I'm learning a lot of life lessons really fast. (laughs) Other than that, I don't really have any regrets. Um, I would possibly wait till next semester to come in, like wait another semester. Instead of doing it all of this in three weeks, maybe spread it out over a couple months, but I don't know. I think it adds to to the fun. (laughs) Trial by fire. (laughs) Exactly. Sink or swim. Um, is there anything else that you think is important to um, just um, your time here and uh, that you want to say? I think it's really important to take advantage of the fact that I'm young and that I can come here and that I can have fun. I get so wrapped up, just like everybody else, I get so wrapped up and I have to pay my bills and I have to get to school and I have to do my homework, which of course is all important stuff, but at home the whole reason I was unhappy is because I was going to school I was going to work I was trying to pay my bills and I never lived there's so much to do in California and I never lived so I moved 2,000 miles away to hopefully have an experience and I'm already finding myself getting a little stressed out and getting into that same routine I was in in California of I got to pay bills and I have to do this and I have to do that to where I need to calm down And I need to tell myself, you know, just have fun. And that's, I guess, what I think everybody needs to remember when they go to college is you're young. You're going to rack up that student debt. Enjoy it. (laughs) I'll be following up with Erica at the end of the semester to see how things have changed and if she sees this beginning in new light. Although it can be a long process for certification and high maintenance to monitor, ASR alumni Haley Grossman looks into how some farmers, like Mike Record of Newground Farm, pursue the organic lifestyle. Even though aiming for organic certification is difficult for smaller operations, Mike's Farm keeps the mission of new ground to make the farm the best it can be. Every American kid knows the song, Old MacDonald. A one, a two, a one, two, three. Old MacDonald's had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. These are my friend's little siblings. Bobby is six and Zach is nine. Their old McDonald's had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. Do you think Old McDonald had an organic farm? Probably not. Farmer Mike Record has probably taught his kids that same song. Mike and his wife Elizabeth own and operate Newground Farm in Bloomington. The farm is 22 acres, which Mike says is shaped like a banana. But man, does this farm have a lot of wind, especially in the big red barn. We're standing in his barn and the wind is swirling. 
He's in the process of renovating it in the hopes of eventually having animals in here. Well, the first thing you see that's probably the most noticeable is the big red barn. Record considers this barn a marketing tool. It is right off the road. We're going to try to capitalize on that by being able to sell vegetables from the farm here. Hopefully the, you know, the red barn will be a distinguishing feature, landmark. Everything about Mike's farm is about being a successful businessman. The barn is about marketing. The certification is about making it the best farm it can be. Everything is thoughtful and serves a larger purpose. The first step was naming the farm New Ground Farm. Because, uh, well, for several reasons, I guess the, the most obvious one is that it's, it's new ground for us. I don't think vegetables have ever been produced here, so it's new in that sense. But also because we're really interested in the, what to us seems like kind of a new way of doing agriculture, which is smaller and more intensive um, with direct connections to the customer, the people that eat the food, kind of paving new ground in terms of agriculture. When you look around the field, there's not a lot of infrastructure. Mike is using trial and error before he makes anything permanent. We're trying to be pretty minimal and also portable or changeable. As we learn what works best, we want to be able to change things around and not have something that we installed in a permanent way that we can't change. So, for example, the the blue pipe you see lying here, this is how we got water out to the field. And it's just a flexible, it's like a fire hose but it runs from near the barn to all the way at the end, and it enabled us to get water out to irrigate, but we can roll it up and move it if we decide this isn't the best place for it. Besides naming the farm, they had another choice. Become certified? It was a mixed decision. Primarily, the, the general consensus in the field seems to be that it's, it's not really worth it for small operations. So, you know, maybe we're kind of going against the grain a little bit. This place is changing every day. I visited Mike several times for four weeks, and every time I came back, he had made a new change to the farm. With all these new elements, Mike thought it was a good time to start the organic certification process. He grew organically in Colorado, where he was certified naturally grown. This is a state-sanctioned organic label for farmers. The thing that appeals to him most about organic agriculture is its emphasis on being good to the soil, growing healthy soil. The way you treat the soil first, ensure that it's healthy, and then from there that kind of moves towards products that come from the soil that are healthy, whether it's produce or meat. And then from there, I think that obviously leads to healthy people and I think healthy communities. Organic farming isn't just about growing healthy soil. There's a lot of red tape. Record is working on building an organic system plan, which is a lot of record keeping. It describes how we how we produce our products and then we have an inspector come who looks at the farm and basically verifies that what we've got in our plan is in fact what we're doing and then once that's done then the certifier which is a third party entity will either approve or deny the application. I asked Mike through all of this hard work why he's doing this. I guess for us what it has served to do is to really force us to think about how we want to farm and our, our processes, and then get that written down on paper, because you have to have a plan, and then you have to follow that plan. If you believe in the old children's song, like I did, you'd think being a farmer was all fun and games, E-I-E-I-O. But what I learned from Mike Record is really it's paperwork here, crop rotation there, here's some soil, there's some fertilizer, veggies, veggies everywhere. And maybe, thanks for farmers like Mike Record, the next generation of kids, 
will know Old MacDonald as an organic farmer. That was a story from our archives by Haley Grossman. <clears throat> so we all have questions, right? Questions that are dark and damp, deep and dismal. Questions that are bright and looming, that are obvious, that are intimate. Questions that have no one answer, no right answer. I'm not here to answer those big questions because I don't know. So in this segment, I'll be asking strangers on the streets of Bloomington, how do you know when you're in love? How do you overcome trauma, injustice? If you could abandon our planet and inhabit one unknown, would you? Why? And today, in theme with our first show, I'm asking, what makes a good beginning? Because maybe a stranger knows. Wait, beginning of what? Like anything, just what makes for a good beginning? I think honesty, being honest and realistic about yourself, about what you want to do with your life, or what you want from a relationship, from a friendship, from a project. I would say what makes for a good beginning would be enthusiasm a good introduction and a pleasant conversation? Well, I think I start with the plans. Think about what should I do in this month, in every month. Always having an open mind because when you're first starting something, you may not know what you're getting into and it'll not turn out well if you have a closed mind to something. I think a good beginning is when you just, you, it's like you're start fresh, but it's like relaxing that you're restarting. Like, when I moved down to Bloomington, I didn't have, like, anyone else to, like, tell me how to live my life, and I just got the chance to, like, explore. Let's see, what makes for a good beginning? Um, I guess having a way to build on what you began is a good beginning, starting with a foundation. So you have uh, uh, all the basics that you need first, and then you build up from there. I feel like I've had a lot of beginnings in my life because I come from a family where I've had eight different schools I've joined and I've had eight different best friends in every school that I went to. And then I finally came here, which was like my biggest change because it's like 32 hours away from home. And I don't think I have any regrets because I feel like every time I met someone new that I connected with on a different level at different ages in my life. I mean, a lot of people despise change and, like, you know, just the idea of meeting new people all the time. But I feel like it it makes for an adventurous life eventually. I would just say be prepared to feel alienated and be prepared to feel out of place in the beginning. But, like, always know in the back of the head that it's going to work out eventually. Like, that needs to be everyone's mindset. For American Student Radio, I'm Sarah Panfill. Thanks for listening to the first installment of Maybe a Stranger Knows. Special thanks to Lunamatic for letting me use his song Kalimba. Check him out on SoundCloud. (laughs) 
Maybe a Stranger Knows will be part of a reoccurring series, so if you have an idea for what Sarah should ask a stranger next, email her at smpanfil at umail.iu.edu. In our final story today, ASR alum Kristen Hine tells us about Katie Hannon, an Indiana University student who had a desire to make people laugh. She'd enjoyed comedy since she was in elementary school, and Kristen tells us how Katie gathered the courage to perform in front of her first audience at the Comedy Attic in Bloomington. Uh, her first time ever doing this. I think a few of you might know her, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to pretend that applause is for me. Oh, the way he introduces people. Uh, you guys, it's the first time. Big round of applause, Katie Hannon. That was Katie's opening night at the Comedy Attic, but it took a lot to get up on that stage. Katie is a friend of mine, and she's known she's wanted to do something with comedy for as far back as she can remember. When I was in elementary school, I would write scripts, and I would, like, rewrite scripts for movies. We're at our house at a table in an old storage room that hardly anyone ever goes in, but it works, because it's not often you can get this humorous to sit down and be serious when there are people around to entertain. I would try to be funny, and I was always joking around with, like, my family when I was younger and trying to make them laugh, so... I mean, I, I just have always known that I wanted to do something with comedy. And then last year, she heard about this open mic night at the Comedy Attic, which actually has a national reputation. And she was interested enough to tell her sister. My sister really wanted me to do it. It was begging me, begging me, begging me, and I just could not muster up the courage. And then finally, everybody was like, you know what? You just need to do it. And I realized that I mean, a lot of my favorite comedians all started when they were like 19, 20, 21, and I'm 21. So if I'm going to start anywhere, I need to start now. And so I just really had the confidence and courage to just push myself to do it. And she signed up and started practicing in her head not out loud. I would practice in the shower in my head, like, you know, just standing there, like just saying it in my head over and over and over. And then finally the day before I hadn't said it out loud. So I was, I was really nervous and I was like, oh my gosh, like I should have said it out loud already. The day of the show, Katie began second guessing herself. She had thoughts about backing out, but friends helped her to regain confidence. I was freaking out all day, just didn't talk about it. And I'm usually a very talkative, like outgoing, making jokes all day person, but I was so quiet. And, you know, I have my classes and I'm getting off the bus after a four hour class of me just obviously thinking about it the whole time. And I'm staring into space on the bus. I'm like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, because I know that I'm just going to start bawling. And I walk into the house. And of course, like, you know, I'm just trying to go straight to my room and start like practicing. And one of my friends is, or, you know, five of them are like, oh, my God, you're so excited. I just go, no, I'm not. And I start bawling and I like dive into one of my friends, Caroline, and she was just like, oh, no, you're going to be fine. And then two of my friends, you and our other friend, Cheyenne, um, helped me practice and come up with an actual set. And we just kept adding and practicing and practicing and practicing. And here we are in God, real time. Katie has about days. one hour left to practice because before showtime. Our fuck? friend Cheyenne sits on Katie's bed while I sit on a chair directly in front of Katie. So if you, anybody, swear to God. Another thing, which I'm, I know... I'm wearing this pretty red lipstick. I just bought it. It's new. And this guy comes up to me. Maybe I'm interested. Maybe I'm not. I was. And, and he said, hey. It's now around 7.15. Wow, I'm getting really excited now. So I offer to drive. The show starts at 8 o'clock. 
Katie sits in the passenger seat while two other friends hop in the back. In the car, I was kind of freaking out. I took a couple shots of vodka <laughs> to calm my nerves. And then we get out of the car, and the first people I see are my parents and my sister. And I'm like, oh, great. I didn't know I was going to see them right away. We arrive and walk up a set of steep stairs. Katie checks in and gets escorted to a green room. There wasn't really a backstage area, so all the comedians in the show stood in the back against a wall, all out of order. So it was really hard to tell when it would be Katie's turn. And then I ended being ended up being 12 out of 13 to go up, and so the whole time I'm like, okay, all right, it's getting closer, 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 and then finally just leading up, I was just, you know, so nervous that they called my name, and I just ran on up there. <laughs> so thanks for coming. Uh, it's really cool because I get this opportunity, and it's like, I, it's great because I might do this as a job one day and I know some of you are thinking like, okay, why don't you pick like a real job, like a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. But I can assure you that there's definitely more jobs insane than a comedian, you know, that they make a lot of money. Uh, like, do you guys know who like Teresa Caputo is? <laughs> the Long Island medium? Yeah. Uh, so she's really cool. Her job, she um, has a very special gift and she talks to the dead. <laughs> And so she takes her clients and she, you know, convinces them. She's like, I really am talking to your beloved lost loved one. And so she asks them, she asks them very specific questions to prove it. So she's like, okay, I'm feeling something. Did somebody that you knew and loved, they had blue, green, or brown eyes in a lifetime. And they're like, yes. And she's like, I know, I have a gift. It's crazy. So when you were on stage, was it everything that you expected it to be? Actually, um, for some reason, I thought that it was just going to be a big stage. I don't know why. Just maybe, you know, of, of course, I'm not going up and having a set at Madison Square Garden. But, you know, like, it's hard to say. I don't know. When you're doing something for the first time, obviously, it's hard to expect what it's going to be like, especially, you know, if you're going swimming for the first time. It's like, oh, well, you've uh, everybody swims. So it's not weird to go swimming for the first time. But like stand up comedy, it's like, how many people do you know that have done that? So it's like, what do you really expect? But I mean, it, the stage is a lot smaller and the lights were a lot brighter and it was much more overwhelming than I thought it would be. Um, so, yeah, talking about jobs, I think that maybe another calling for me, if, you know, I don't work out as a comedian, let's hope I do, uh, would maybe be relationship advice, because I know some do's and a lot of don'ts. Um, for example, maybe a don't, I don't know, um, I'm fantastic at drunk texting. Um, because how else are you supposed to inform somebody that you're interested if you don't text them six times in a row at three in the morning, maybe call them crying. I don't know. What are some of the downfalls of stand-up comedy? I think some of the downfalls are that it's definitely putting yourself out there. And it's like, not one thing will collectively make everybody laugh. Like everybody has a different sense of humor and literally going up on stage is, you know, here I am. I'm saying these jokes, you laugh or not, and it's going to show if I'm successful or if I'm a failure at this. Um, and then I also think it's very competitive and at the same time not taken seriously. So competitive, like, between different comedians because it's like, like, I remember sitting there and somebody said, you know, 
one of the topics that I was going to hit. And I was like, oh, my God, they said what I was going to say. Like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? But, I mean, it was totally different. People have different takes on comedy. So it's just it's competitive. And at the same time, it's not taken seriously. So um, I don't know. Like, I mean, a lot of people there were, like, kind of poking fun that I was a sorority girl and that I was up there doing it. And it's like, you know, just because I'm in a sorority means I can't do stand-up comedy or I'm not quirky enough or whatever. So it's competitive and it's not taken seriously as much as I would love it to be, especially for women, I think. Um, I think it's a downfall that, you know, everybody would, you know, everybody really likes guy stand-up comedians, but not a lot of people take girls seriously. So hopefully I can change that or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, another thing I'm pretty good at is being friend-zoned, which we talked about earlier. Um, and I kid you not, these are two true stories that have happened to me. Uh, you know, so I walk into a party, and I did my makeup, my hair's all curled. I walk up the stairs, and I see this guy, and he comes toward me, and, the, you know, I may or may not have been interested. I was. And, then, and uh, he, I'm like, hi. He looks me in the eye, says, What's up, bro? And punches me in the stomach. I'm not kidding. Like, are you fucking kidding me? My heart hurt worse than my stomach did. He was six, probably 10, 170 pounds. Um, yeah. Yeah, very, very true stories for me. Uh, so I guess if either of those two things don't work out, I could always, you know, just be a stay-at-home mom. Uh, <laughs> my mom's here. Right? Uh, if she's not nervous now, she yeah, she probably is now. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, so you know, like, as a mom, wake up eight fifteen in the morning, take your kids to school, get back like nine o'clock, fall asleep for six hours. I mean, run errands, <laughs> and um, you know, after that, you could go on your walks. You know, you're with all your girls and you're gossiping, <laughs> and the mom's got the walk, so they're. <laughs> you know, I heard Susan sleeping with the pool boy. <laughs> yeah, um, Johnny made the honorable, but I gotta make pizza. Yeah, I'll see you later, baby. <laughs> so let's hope comedy works out. Thank you so much. This is my first time. In Bloomington, I'm Kristen Hines. You just heard an archive story from former student Kristen Hines. In thinking about beginnings, I've thought a lot about my own beginnings in audio just about two years ago. In spring of 2014, I saw my first Welcome to Night Vale live show. For those of you who don't know, Welcome to Night Vale is a popular fictional podcast, and for the past two years, they've been taking live shows on the road across the country and abroad. Seeing the show live on stage completely changed how I listened to both podcasts and audio as a medium, and sparked an interest that has brought me to today. If you told me then that I'd be host for a student radio show and working with people who produce the kinds of stories that first got me interested in radio, I wouldn't believe it. So that's what I think is the best part about a beginning, is that it's just a tiny moment, a place in time, that marks the starting point for something so far beyond what we can foresee at that moment. So here's hoping this show marks an incredible new beginning for American student radio. We'll be back next week with host Carter Barrett and Tristan Fitzpatrick, who will explore the gray area with stories about religion and belief. I've been your host this week, Sophia Salaby. Our show was produced by Matt Bloom. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. 
Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 